Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte Creative and Technical Director at Evidence for Faith. And just as a reminder, there's still a couple days left to get your 2022 Marine Biology application in if you haven't done so yet. The deadline for that is February 28th. If you'd like to get more information, you can head over to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 Marine Biology. That's evidence number four faith.org slash 2022 marine biology or click the events tab when you're on our website now as always this program is supported by donors just like you if you'd like to help support this program you can go to evidenceforfaith.org slash give that's evidence number four faith.org slash give and without further ado here is michael lane in episode 13 session 13 of the road to emmaus messianic prophecies of the old testament Welcome back to Evidence for Faith and our Road to Emmaus, our lessons on the Messianic prophecies concerning the Messiah and showing evidence that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Messiah, the Christ. And so glad you're joining us today. I did have uh, an opportunity the other day to speak at a church again. Um, I've been speaking at a lot of churches recently, and a person came up to me and after I was finished, and they said, um, been listening to your podcasts on uh, the uh, Messianic prophecies, and this has been fascinating, they said. They, they had no idea there were so many prophecies um, concerning about Jesus's ministry here on earth when he came as the suffering Messiah. They said that, we, that they knew that the, the Old Testament had uh, prophecies, but that did not know the extent of them or or how to explain some of them. Say so, so we've really been enjoying this, and I love getting comments and stuff. Uh, some people suggest certain things; others will say that they they use this or they pass this on. They they send links to our podcast to other people. Uh, whatever the whole purpose of this and the purpose of this ministry is to try to get the the truth out about who Jesus is that He is the Son of God that He is the Messiah. And there is only one way to eternal life, and that is through Jesus Christ, as he said himself. So as we go through this, we're trying to show that uh, there are many prophecies dealing with the Messiah. And where we last left off, we were in the book of Psalms, and we're going to still be in the book of Psalms here for a while. <clears throat> Excuse me, because there are a lot, and I mean a lot of prophecies having to do with the Messiah, um, and as he came as the suffering Messiah, his first uh, ministry here. Of course, Jesus is coming again. There's some future prophecies that have not, we are not covering those as much as we are what these Old Testament prophecies said the Messiah would, would be like. So how the people would recognize him. How would you know when the Messiah comes to fix the problem of sin? And that's why all these different authors, God was telling them, write these things down so people will be able to identify the Messiah. So we're so glad to do this. We are uh, have been numbering these, if you've been following. <clears throat> Excuse me. And today we're going to be focusing on uh, starting off with number 42. <clears throat> so this is the 42nd uh, major prophecy of the Messiah found in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, and you have to pardon, <clears throat> have to pardon me. My voice, uh, I've been fighting off an illness here, a bad cold just recently, and 
Um, couldn't even make some recordings for a while because I didn't have any voice. But please uh, excuse me if I have to cough or take a drink of water or something as we go through this. But as I said, we're on number 42. So if you have a notebook and you've been keeping track of these or whatever, um, if you're just numbering these in your Bible or whatever, uh, underlining or marking the sections, we're on number 42 of the major prophecies. And just again, when, if, you're, if you're new to us, the reason I'm saying major prophecies is because there are hundreds, hundreds of prophecies dealing with Jesus as the Messiah. We're only looking at the major prophecies and there's around 80 or so of these that we're going through. So we're on number 42. So roughly we're about halfway through it. And we're going to start off today with number 42. This is going to be in Psalm chapter 45. And it's going to be verses 6 and 7 particularly um, that we see our messianic. And I'm entitling this one as each time I'm doing this. I'm giving you a subtitle for each one. This one is the throne that lasts forever. The throne that lasts forever. So if you have your Bibles and you're following along with us, please turn to Psalm 45. And as you look at this, we're going to focus on uh, 6 and 7. But just to give you some interesting uh, feedback, too, about this psalm. This is a psalm that is a wedding song. It's a song, as many of these psalms are. They're songs. And this one here is specifically a love song, a love song for a wedding. And... Um, as we're going to look at this, we're going to sort of focus on verses uh, 6 and 7. And they read, and again, we're using the English Standard Version. It's a word-for-word uh, translation. And so we're using this one since we're looking specifically at words. And it reads, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of right uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this psalm has an intro to it, and it continues on here, but this is the messianic portion. And how do I know this is messianic? Am I just making stuff up? No, I'm not, because I can show you right here. If you were to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, um, which is very descriptive about who Jesus is. I mean, the entire book of Hebrews is phenomenal for, for all of the um, aspects of who the Messiah is. It gives you a great definition and explanation um, in great detail of who Jesus is. But in, in Hebrews chapter 1, and if you look at verses 8 and 9, and I'm going to read this, see if this sounds familiar. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So you see that the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, <clears throat> whether it's Paul, Apollos, or whoever wrote the thing, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is being told by the Spirit that this psalm is messianic and this portion of it is dealing with jesus now as i said this is really a wedding song if you read it in its entirety it's a beautiful song um and it really doesn't fit anybody specifically 
in the Old Testament. Some people say David, but if you you study David's life with his wives and things, and um, some of his wives weren't the most um, holy people, uh, so it it really doesn't fit with David. And and some people will say, well, it's probably Solomon, because uh, it talks about uh, certain aspects of of gold coming from Ophir or something. And and Solomon, we know, did that. It doesn't really fit Solomon because this this person is talked about being very victorious in battles, um, in many, many battles and being victorious. Solomon, his reign was more of a, a reign of peace. There were not many battles. Uh, that was a promise made to David that he would give his son, uh, Solomon, a reign mostly of peace. And that's what happened. David was the one with all the battles and stuff. So, no, I don't believe this is Solomon. Um because of verse 5. There's just not a whole lot mentioned about the battles and stuff taking place. Thus, we're left with, and what this is actually talking about, is with the wedding of the Messiah and his bride, the church. Now, let me just state, too, before I go any further, many of the things, uh, items in this psalm are actually future events for the second coming, for end-time prophecies concerning the Messiah. But where I talked about in verses 6 and 7, this is specifically talking about the suffering Messiah, Jesus, when he came. And one of the most fascinating things, I just, I just love this, is how God, the Father, is addressing the um, the anointed one. Anointed one is Mashiach, which is, in Greek, it's Christos, Christ. So this is God talking to Jesus, and God addresses his son as God. Thus, this passage here is proof, again, that we have seen before, of the deity of Jesus. Because it says, um, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. This is a reference of God talking to his anointed one, and he's calling him God. He's not just some ruler king. He's God himself. Again, that's why this doesn't really fit. That verse just doesn't fit the, the other kings and stuff like that that we see um, in, in the history there. Now, as it continues, this uh, throne that, that this king has lasts forever. Uh, it's an everlasting throne. Again, we're talking about deity here. Um, so no other way can this be attributed to anyone except the Messiah. And kings um, were usually also anointed. Yes, they would be anointed. <clears throat> you see this happening all the time in when kings are uh, um, uh, taking the throne, uh, they would be anointed. Many of the kings of Judah were anointed at the Gihon Spring, um, but there was an anointing, anointing that would take place. Um, and when you would anoint, you just didn't go down to Walmart and buy you know, a bottle of um, Crisco or olive oil or something like this. You had to make a special type of oil. The, the oil of gladness, it's, it's often referred to in Scripture. And it's talked about, and even part of the recipe is described in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 25, of what this oil of gladness that's being mentioned here. Because it mentions, it specifically says the oil of gladness. What is the oil of gladness? Well, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 25, it talks about that the oil of gladness is what is anointing, is being used to anoint a priest. 
So it's something that was special for the priesthood that they would be anointed with. Um, olive oil and stuff were often used um, for kings and things, but this this is a special event. So it's just not with olive oil. It has um, specifically, it's talking about myrrh added to it and aloes and, and um, cassia and, and some other uh, ingredients. Well, it's, it's interesting because myrrh, cassia, those were things that were used also, not in anointing a priest. They were used in the burial of people. When Jesus was um, going to be buried, uh, or anybody in New Testament times, you, you're being buried, they would, you know, wrap the body, but they would anoint it. They'd wash the body, then they would anoint it with spices. And you remember how the stories go. The women went to the stores when Jesus, uh, on Sunday morning, they had gone to the store and they had bought a bunch of spices, probably like a, um, around 100 to 120 pounds of spices and aloes and stuff that they coat the body with, and then they wrap it. And so they were going to prepare the body for burial, but Jesus is already risen was out of the tomb and gone but this was uh, those are also ingredients that this recipe is used for but it's called the oil of gladness and so yes they were they were substances used in burial that's true but here it's also substance that was used for a priest now Wait a minute, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But as we've already learned in previous lessons, and the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, specifically talks about Jesus is now the new high priest. A greater high priest than what you see of the line of Aaron and the Levites. He is the supreme high priest, and Jesus is our high priest, our mediator between God the Father and ourselves. So, it is appropriate that he would be anointed with this oil of gladness. Um, and so we hear, there we read, uh, therefore God, your God has anointed you. And, and Jesus, if you think about this also, was twice anointed in his ministry. To be a king, you have to be anointed. To be a priest, you have to be anointed. Well, he's the king of kings, and he is the ultimate high priest, greater than Melchizedek, back as we talked about before in the book of Genesis, in one of our earlier lessons. But let me just read for a second here, showing you that Jesus was anointed, thus fulfilling the requirements that God's law set up. In Luke chapter 7, verse 38, it says, And standing behind him in his feet, weeping, to talk about a prostitute, she began to weep, uh, or to wet his feet with her tears, and wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And again, in John chapter 12, verses 3 through 7, we read, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who had about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So we see this all coming together here. That Jesus would be anointed, and he is anointed. The oil of gladness, it fits both the burial and it fits the priesthood, just as Jesus um, is both of those for us today. Is that not cool? I mean, isn't that neat how this all falls together? So that's number 42. Let's go to number 43. Number 43 
We're still in Psalms, of course. We're in Psalms for a while. Um, Psalm chapter 68. So if you want to turn over to Psalm 68, we're going to look at one verse in particular in this psalm. In Psalm 68, um, and I'm entitling this one, The Messiah Ascends into Heaven. The Messiah Ascends into Heaven. Psalm 68, 18. Have you ever wondered why Jesus ascended the way he did at the end of his ministry? after the resurrection and going around proving to people that he was alive, um, that he went to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and then it says he arose and um, ascended up into heaven as they stood there watching. That why did he go out that way? That way? Why didn't you know he uh, just disappear in a wisp of smoke or um, go into the temple and just uh, disappear or something? Why did he ascend? Why was that set up like that? <clears throat> it had to do with prophecy from the Old Testament, yes. And this is the prophecy. Psalm 68, 18 reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, you might be thinking, Michael, I think you're stretching this a bit. Well, no, I'm not, because Paul actually quotes this psalm in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 10, Paul uses this in description as a prophecy concerning the Messiah. Look what it reads um, in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he had also ascend, descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who asc also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So Paul uses this, this verse specifically, speaking of the Messiah's ascension. I mean, without Paul's inspiration from the Holy Spirit, we might not have caught it. But the Holy Spirit tells Paul to put this down, and thus we do know, because in Acts chapter 1-9, we read, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. So we know that Jesus was ascended, and that's why Jesus was ascended, um, as it's recorded in Scripture. And um, that's how he left to go to his heavenly throne. But he is alive even to this day. So that was 43. 43 was sort of a short one. It's just that one point, which takes us now to number 44. And this is going to take us the rest of this lesson because this is a biggie. What we're seeing here is Psalm 69. So this is number 44. Psalm 69, and I'm titling this, the suffering messiah the suffering messiah now some of you who have been listening to the series might have noted hey uh michael you didn't tell us what verse right because it's the whole cotton picking psalm it's the whole thing this psalm psalm 69 uh, verses 1 through 36 is one of the most uh messianic psalms there are now, it, it is, and in many cases we've seen this, we've talked about this, some of these prophecies have a dual meaning. Some of it means David, some of it means some other person, but it also means the Messiah. This one uh, is referring to David, it's true, but it also has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. So this whole psalm, we're going to read this whole psalm because the whole psalm is messianic. And this psalm is quoted seven times 
in the New Testament. Only Psalm 22 is more often quoted in regards to the Messiah than this one here. So nearly every verse of this psalm can be linked directly to Jesus with one exception, and that's going to be verse 5. That refers to David alone. But everything else that we're going to come across in this psalm is messianic. And the way it is set up, it's divided into three sections, three main sections. And as we read these, if you're going to follow along with me, if you have your Bibles, the first section is going to be verses 1 through 27. That's a large section right there, 1 through 27. And then there's a a second section, that's verses 22 through 28. And then there's a third section, verses 29 to the end, verse 36. But let's read this psalm. And again, as we, we go through this and read this, have in, on your mind, just trying to, as we read through these, the words and stuff of what's taking place, how this parallels a lot of things you know about Jesus. It's really cool. So we start. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mirror where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, who those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek to be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth for clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or let the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches that have broken my heart so that I I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but found none. 
they gave me poison for food, and from my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecuted him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment that they may have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living, and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted, and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now, that's quite a long psalm. And I hope you were able to see many things in here pertaining directly to Jesus. Having to restore we didn't steal. Um, he's redeeming mankind. That's what Satan stole from God. He, he is now having to repay. Uh, to become a stranger to his brothers, an alien to his family. Well, Jesus definitely fit that. The, 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 uh, in verse which one, 9, the zeal for your house will consume me. Remember what how he cleaned the temple and stuff? Um, it even talked about in verse 10 about him fasting. Jesus fasted. Uh, verse 21, where it talks about they gave me poison for food. Uh, how he thirsted and they gave him sour wine to drink. How they persecuted him, how they afflicted him. Oh my gosh, there's so many cool things in this. So the first section, as we get into this now, the first section of this psalm um, is the prayer of the Messiah. Now this is verses 1 through 27. I'm just calling this section here the prayer of the Messiah. And it's it's like Jesus saying these things. In verse 1 it says, save me. Well, now some have actually said to me before, when I, I was teaching this in a class, when did Jesus ever say such a thing as save me? Well, when Jesus was in the garden, if you'll recall, he um, he knew what was coming. He he predicted many times his um, his end at, at being sacrificed and put on the cross and stuff. And when he's in the garden, this is when Satan's trying to break him, and he calls out for help from God. Um, but I love how Jesus said, you know, when he asks, is there some way we could do this without me having to go to the cross, basically? Is there some way this this cup of wrath can can pass by me? But Jesus then added the most beautiful words. And it's something we should always end our prayers in. Not my will, but yours. Oh, how many times do we tell God how his will should be? And we shouldn't. 
Let's take the example of Jesus. I've been guilty of this too. Let's take the example of Jesus and add this petition to our prayers. Even when we make requests of God, Lord, what is your will? That's what I want. And so that's a great thing right there. We see from verse one. Verse four, it mentioned, what I did not steal, I must now restore. And as I said, what item was stolen? Us, fallen man. Jesus came to do what? Restore man, fallen man, to the holy God, the Father. And he had to conquer death and remove sin. And again, because of that fact right there, that's why I know that the six days of creation were not long eras of time where there were predator-prey relationships because Jesus had to come to conquer death. That's what he's doing. He had to restore what had happened. And there was no death before this. So death was the enemy of God. Jesus had to fix that also. Verse 7, it says, For I bore reproach. Jesus was often suffering. He was being verbally abused frequently. And, and before going to the cross, he, he suffers scourging and stuff for God's cause. Verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers. Now, actually, this is fulfilled in two different ways. First of all, even Jesus' brothers didn't accept him. In John chapter 7, verses 3, 4, and 5, John wrote, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So we get that right there. Also, Another time um, Jesus is um, a stranger to his brothers, his disciples deserted him and fled. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, this is all prophesied that the disciples would, would believe too. It reads, but all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled and all the disciples left him and fled. No doubt Matthew referring to this prophecy here. Another verse that we saw was it says, a zeal for your house. This is verse 9. The zeal, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And as I said, when Jesus was at Passover in John chapter 2, we read in verses 13 through 17, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They're quoting this psalm. How cool is that? Here's another one. Uh, The second part of that same verse, verse 9, because it goes on and says, the reproaches of those who reproach me. Jesus is being was being reproached many times. And, and Paul actually picks this up in Romans chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself, but it is, as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is accepting the, the reproaches of man. It's prophesied there in this psalm. Or if you look at verses 10, 11, and 12, it says that he was being made fun of, that he's mocked, that he's scorned. And we see this. 
read Matthew 26, verses 67, 68. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesize to us, you Christ. Who is it who struck you? Luke 23, um, verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him, get this, sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of Jews, save yourself. So we see he's being mocked and stuff. That was a prophecy. Here it is being fulfilled. Or, or take a look at verse 13. My prayer is to you, O Lord. What's going on here? The Messiah prays to the Father. Jesus prayed often to the Father. The Messiah prays that God will hear him. Uh, take a look at Matthew 26, verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he goes and he prays to the Father. And what's he pray? We see the next thing. In verses 14 through 20, we see the prayer of the Messiah. Jesus, there in the garden, he's praying, deliver me. He's praying for deliverance. Matthew 26, verses 39 through 42, specifically pulled this out of this psalm and utilize it. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and, and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, found they were sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, the, your will be done. So we see Jesus praying for deliverance. But as I said before, he makes the great petition at the end. Father, it's your will. <clears throat> That's an amazing thing what God wills. Oh, I wish I would pray that more often when I would say my prayers to God and, and talk to him throughout the day and ask him, oh Lord, can you, I need this or I need that. But I, more often I need to add, if it's your will, oh God, we should always put that at the end of, of our prayers when we're talking to God. Verse 21, as we continue this, it says, They gave me poison for food, and from my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Well, now some translations, um, the NIV and some others, call this the poison gall. They, they actually use the term poison gall. Uh, gall, what, what is gall? <clears throat> well, gall is an extract from the poppy flower. And it's a poisonous substance, but in small doses, it's a narcotic. Um, yes, poppies uh, are narcotic. And it makes me think like the Wizard of Oz. And when they're in the field of poppies, yeah, it's, it, um, it's narcotic. Um, can extra, uh, can get rid of pain and stuff. And we know that um, it's this, um, this substance, it was used, we know frequently, by the Romans for crucifixion. They would mix it with vinegar or a, a wine, um, and they would pour the gall in that and mix it as a drink. Uh, it would be mingled with, with uh, gall. And even in Mark chapter 15, 23, it talks about mingled with myrrh. Here again, we're using myrrh. But the expression here is the same thing. It's vinegar or sour wine, basically is what it is. And it's infused with this substance. Now, why would they give this to Jesus? Because Jesus was offered this on the cross. Why did they do this? Um, 
it was something because the Romans are getting ready to nail, put these massive nails in the wrists and the feet of the people. And recall, um, to, that's going to cause a lot of pain and stuff. So the Romans were a little sympathetic here because they would sometimes offer gall mixed with wine, sour wine, to the people. And what it is, it's a slight, uh, a slight narcotic, um, like taking a Vicodin or something, you might say. Uh, Jesus, though, if you recall, when he tasted it, he refused it because he wanted to make sure that nothing would cloud his faculties or, uh, or blunt the pain of dying because he wanted, he voluntarily chose to experience the fullness of this, uh, the, the full suffering, the, the element of all of this pain, this bitter cup of agony that was given him by the Father God. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 34, it says, And they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. We tasted it, they would, or he would not drink it. Uh, Mark 15, 23, And when they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Luke 23, 36, The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine. And we know now that it had myrrh and it also had gall in it. And so they put these things here, but Jesus refuses it. Now, here's an important lesson for us. Jesus didn't do drugs. Did you catch that? Jesus didn't do narcotics. No, he didn't. So don't do drugs. Jesus didn't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Well, we're not going to go on to that. But that's the first section of this thing. And let's let's take a look um, at the second part of this Messianic Psalm here, verses 23 to 28. And this is having to do with the, uh, the prophecy regarding the Messiah's enemies. Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uses this passage here, verses 22 through 28, to tell us um, about what he's saying. And, it, and it, Paul writes this in a Romans chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. He takes parts of this and puts it in here. And it reads, and David says, let their tables become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever so paul in making his uh, doctrinal statements here in the book of romans chapter 11 actually pulls this out about regarding the enemies of the messiah and they will come to punishment there's no question about it um and it's amazing today of how many, like going through this study, how many people I'm trying to show evidence that Jesus is the Messiah and are going to just totally reject this and stay as enemies of God. Um, and their day, sadly, their day will come um, with all the, the evil and stuff. They People who reject Jesus as the Messiah for some false religion or just because they're angry with him or they just choose not to believe in him. Um their end is not going to be pleasant. Jesus speaks frequently about that. And then there's a third part, just to wrap this up in this lesson, to wrap it up here today too. There's a third part to this this prophecy uh, of this psalm, and it's verses 29 through 36. And what it is, if you uh, recall, as we read through this, or you read through it again, you're going to see it's all about praising God, praising the Lord, giving thanks. That's what we see. In other words, it's the victory of the Messiah. That's how this psalm ends. So it's talking about what Jesus did at the cross. There's victory. And when he comes again, the suffering Messiah who came the first time will come back as the victorious warrior, judge, king Messiah. That's who's coming for us. Well, that concludes our lesson for today. And I hope you've 
enjoyed this and, and got some things out of this. Some of these psalms are difficult to follow through. I understand that. They're, they're not always the clear. Some, as we've seen in many, many of our prophecies, some are just so easy to distinguish. Others, we have to really sit and study carefully to see what's going on and look at the life of Jesus. So as we continue with this in the future um, and the next lessons and stuff, I hope you'll come back with us. And again, we would love to hear from you. You can make comments on our website. And if if you would be interested, we would love to have you be a part of our ministry. Well, we're looking for people to pray for our ministry and to help us out financially. Um, we would relish that and, and we would be greatly appreciative of this. And if you can't, uh, just even if you were to just send us a, a, a note telling us how this ministry has helped or blessed you, um, that would mean a lot to us because our whole purpose here is not doing this for ourselves. Our staff here at Evidence for Faith, we're all about showing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that there is evidence. And here we're seeing evidence written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked on the earth um, in his ministry of the four Gospels. Before that ever took place, hundreds of years, uh, Christ was being foretold in prophecies. Um, God was telling the prophets to write these things down and so you would be able to recognize him when he comes. So thanks for joining us. Uh, until we meet again, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.